Welcome to Act and Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. Thank you for listening. I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate right now to the show notes for this episode, where you're going to find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where you listen to find podcasts. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find our show. Today, I'm joined by Dan Huger, Acton's librarian and a research associate, and Dylan Palman, executive editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality and a research fellow here at Acton. This week, we'll discuss the summit between Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin. But first, let's go to Utah, which is probably very nice this time of year. It's you know, getting into spring. The mountains are very beautiful. But they've also just signed a uh, – their governor has signed a piece of legislation into law that is going to put restrictions on the access to social media for minors. So give you a little bit about what this law entails uh, from the Associated Press. Uh, Children and teens in Utah would lose access to social media apps such as TikTok if they don't have parental consent and face other restrictions under a first-in-the-nation law designed to shield young people from the addictive platforms. Two laws signed by Republican Governor Spencer Cox Thursday – Prohibit kids under 18 from using social media between the hours of 10.30 p.m. and 6.30 a.m. Require age verification for anyone who wants to use social media in the state. And open the door to lawsuits on behalf of children claiming social media harmed them. Collectively, they seek to prevent children from being lured to apps by addictive features and having ads promoted to them. The companies are expected to sue before the law takes effect in March 2024. So that's some of the basics of the laws that have now been passed in Utah. And I think there are, to me, two levels of this conversation. Um, First is what is being assumed here and in what we're going to get to in the next topic, uh, which is the congressional hearings on TikTok. There is this widely agreed to, but uh, I'm not quite on board with yet conclusion that Social media, these apps are A, addictive, B, particularly bad for minors, and just C, kind of bad overall and necessitating some kind of government uh, action, some kind of legislation to deal with them. And then there's the actual form that it is taken here in Utah, which is uh, being promoted. uh, Someone whose work I actually do quite like, uh, Brad Wilcox. Uh, had tweeted out the other day in response to these laws being passed, uh, love to see it, Utah's new legislation, takes power from big tech and puts it in the hands of parents. My personal favorite, the overnight curfew. And this uh, apparently, uh, his organization, uh, they had been working, uh, so he's the uh, professor and director of the National Marriage Project at UVA, uh, had been working with Utah and their legislators on this legislation restricting social media access for minors. So feel free to take... uh, uh, a shot at either of the two levels of questions that I asked there. Is this necessary? And assuming the answer to that is yes, is this a good form for this kind of legislation then to take? So uh, I, I'm i a parent. Uh, my wife and I have four children. Uh, our oldest is 11. Um, so, so far, he does not have a phone. He doesn't have a, his own computer, although yeah, at least this, this, the computer is probably coming soon. He's going to need it for school. Um, but it's the sort of thing that 
I get the concern. Um, I think there's probably something to not, I mean, addiction is kind of a weird term. I think of addiction like, you know, a chemical addiction. Uh, but of course, you can be addicted just to like the serotonin in your brain, you know, so people get addicted to gambling. It's not exactly a chemical addiction like alcohol or heroin. But um, but there is a similar sort of thing going on with social media. It's this kind of the slot machine effect of I pull the lever and the the thing spins and I, you know, um, and you kind of, you get that. You, you know, I remember first time having Facebook or Twitter or whatever, when you, you tweet something or say something, like, oh, I got a like, you know, and, you know, I can't imagine being a teenager and being in the midst of that. Now, I also was a particularly a, a socially awkward teenager, so I might not have gotten the appeal anyway. Um, so yeah, I, I had some natural uh, <laughs> protection against some of that. But I, I get the concern where I don't, you know, there's there's all kinds of people out there on the Internet. Not only are there bad people, but there's just the worst of every person on the Internet. Um, so wanting to make sure, you know, your kids are safe, totally get that. I am very, very skeptical of the means chosen to do that. My means chosen to do that is called parenting. Um, I plan to just, you know, make sure I'm being very careful about how, when they have access, how they have access. You know, if I get him a computer, I'm not going to let him keep it in his room sort of thing. So he can't access it after bedtime. Um, there's, you know, it's just like he plays Nintendo, right? I limit the amount of time he can use on that. And um, all of the stuff that's being proposed, I can't imagine a teenager not finding a workaround. Uh, you know, even I remember like the first time a website would pop up and say like, are you 18 or older? And it was after I was already 18. So I'd say yes or, you know, whatever, if, if it was something like that. Or, you know, like I, my brother, um, speaking of gambling, was, you know, is into, you know, sports betting and that sort of thing. I was like, here, 20 free bucks on this site, you know, so I tried that out. Um, and, uh, and, you know, same sort of thing. Are you 21 or older pops up? But it's just a, like a little pop-up thing. You can click yes, no matter who you are. You know, <laughs> like kids will do it. Like I, I see like no reason to believe that the measures proposed are not very easily, you know, forgeable or falsifiable or you know, um, you know circumventable by and uh, uh, intuitive. Uh, uh, What's the word I'm looking for? I don't ingenuitive. Know. Yeah, ingenuitive uh, teenagers, yeah. Uh, and they are. Um, they're turns out kids are good with computers, and adults aren't. Um, and I, I always <laughs> remember a uh, there's a great Dennis Miller joke about you know, and this will date how long ago this joke is from. Uh, but you know, I'm uh, I'm still trying to figure out how to get my computer to say you've got mail. Meanwhile, my 12 year old has hacked into NORAD and declared war on Russia. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so that's my thought. Is I'm I'm very sympathetic to the motivation behind this. Um, I'm unsympathetic to the framing of we're taking power back from big tech or whatever. I don't think that's actually going to happen, even if this does pass and in some way work. But I'm very skeptical, very very skeptical that it actually can work. That's just not, in my experience, how the internet and computers and teenagers work. I'll get back to the. Uh, the first part of it in a little bit, because uh, I'm, I think, far more skeptical of the uh, the necessity for any kind of action here than perhaps you are, and certainly far less than uh, legislators in, in Utah. But from that tweet from Brad Wilcox, I, 
I just straight up do not understand the sentence. Utah's new legislation takes power from big tech and puts it in the hands of parents. Because like you, Dylan, I have two children myself. I have a 12-year-old and a 9-year-old. They have tablets. They are uh, Apple iPads. There is a set of settings in Apple's settings for the iPad that allows me to restrict total screen time and the amount of time they're allowed to spend on any apps. It requires me to approve any app that they download. Uh, They can't make any kind of purchases without me or my wife approving it. Uh, The power has always and already is in parents' hands. I do not understand what Brad or people uh, making similar statements are saying here, as if big tech has some kind of truly insidious power that they are sneaking into your home in the middle of the night and shoving a phone or a tablet into your child's hands. And I I do not understand the argument that this is anything other than right-wing conservative nanny statism. The idea that, you know, perhaps it's, oh, it's just too hard for parents to parent. So the state is going to step in and is going to help them do it. And I just, you know, this is similar to a, a, a an argument in a podcast that came out last week where I talked with uh, our former colleague, Sam Gregg, about the right's left turn on economics. But I see this as a left turn as well, this turning to the idea that it is the state's role to help raise children. Um, That is my responsibility. That is my job. It is not the job of the Utah legislature. It is not the job of the Michigan legislature. It is not and is certainly not the job of the federal legislature. You already, as a parent, have the control to do this. Now, are there going to be parents who let their kids have too much time on devices like this? Yes. Are there going to be parents out there who give their kids access to these devices far too early? Yes. I yet I have yet again to hear the compelling argument for why it is the role of the state to step in and prevent parents from making defensible but perhaps bad decisions. I do not understand the argument, and I am frankly baffled by this turn by uh, people who I thought believed in the idea of the rights of parents and of individual responsibility, because this seems to me like a complete abdication of those principles. I mean, the reason is harm reduction. This is the reason that all of the legislators give. They parade about these studies. Jonathan Haidt has compiled uh, a Google Doc of sort of very comprehensive document on these studies. And there's an idea out there that children's mental health is compromised by the use of social media. Now, some of those studies show no effect. Some of those studies show marginal effects. But when you add up all the children of the world on the margins, that ends up being millions of children. And that's, that's, that's the logic. Um, if we step back, though, and we talk about this in terms of, of addiction, I, in a previous life, worked with people struggling with addiction. And I don't like the way you know we trivialize addiction, whether we talk about it in terms of social media or whether we talk about it in terms of, you know, I'm a chocoholic. Um, I think these things are very different. Um, I think we lack a language for, uh, something that, you know, St. Paul knew very well is there's sometimes things that we don't want to do that we do anyways, because we like them. Um, and maybe we realize we shouldn't like them, uh, but we like them anyways. The comedian Norm MacDonald, 
uh, tells a, a great joke where he talks about, he goes, I remember a psychiatrist once telling me that I gamble in order to escape the reality of life. I told him that's why everybody does everything. <laughs> <laughs> and there is a seductive power to the creation writ large that can sometimes be disordered and draw us away even with good things that we develop disordered attachments to, uh, that does not make something an addiction. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm skeptical of the social science data here. A lot of it is dependent on the notion that, oh, about the time these social media companies take off, we see, sometimes we see, sometimes we don't see, depending on the study, these negative effects. The problem is, is that one of the reasons that social media companies take off is because of widespread adoption of smartphones. So why we have decided to single out this one thing is it's just a sort of assumption behind these is that we see after 2010 number go up. And we attribute that, or many of these studies attribute that to social media, when it could be the ubiquity of pocket personal computing. It could be any number of other things going on in the culture. Now, the law itself is interesting. It doesn't take effect for a year yet um, because it's half-baked and because it's authors and because they know, realize that it's half-baked. Yeah, and because they know that these companies are going to sue and that more likely than not, these companies are going to win, which just underscores that this is about virtue signaling far more than it is about any actual implication or effect that this law would have because they are pretty darn sure it's never going to actually take effect. Well, and this is the question, like, the interesting thing, if you dig into the law— this is not directed at social media companies. This is directed at sites with over 10 million members. Now, any social media company you think of that you know about probably fits that category. But as the Electronic Frontier Foundation points out, um, there's, there's sites like All Trails, which helps you find and share hiking spots. They would also be subject to this because they have over 10 million members. So would any site. So... Even the, the definition of— Heck, even AOL. Yeah, of quote-unquote social media is not tied to any of the things other than the size of the user base and the number of accounts. The bill also doesn't detail how companies verify users. An early version of the bill wanted some sort of evidence of state-produced ID. Um, that was taken out. And this has been sensed in the legislation delegated to a regulatory agency, which has not come forward with how they are going to do this. Now, they have a year to figure it out. Um, but that's that's the sense in which this is half-baked. There's also a real sense in which there's federal law right now that prohibits under-13s uh, from signing up for social media sites. And it has not been effective. Um, 12 year olds get Facebook accounts, 12 year olds get Instagram accounts. This happens. This might be regrettable, but as we can see from the federal legislation, which is much easier, um, it's much easier to regulate these things on a national scale. The sort of places, you know, you've seen efforts to regulate internet usage in places like China, in places like India, 
all of these things they do nationally because it's just such an immense technical problem. And even in those places, there are workarounds that citizens use. Um, so you've got you've got kind of a half-baked idea based on a hunch, based on uh, small effects in social science data, uh, the underlying harm. I think this is, I mean, this is one of the reasons, you know, there's a sense in which popular legislation gets passed because it's popular. This was a bipartisan, uh, Utah has a Republican supermajority, but there were Democrats that signed on to this bill in Utah. This was an extremely popular initiative. And I think one of the reasons it's popular is because all of us are sort of deeply uneasy with the role that social media plays in our lives. And we are especially sensitive to the needs of children. Um, this is the perfect storm of those two things coming together and, uh, you know, makes for a political victory, whether, I mean, it will be interesting when the, if this, if this law goes through, if it withstands these court challenges, social scientists will have a new playground in which to, uh, to measure, uh, these supposed effects. This is a quintessential example to me of why, on one hand, the proper working of our form of government with uh, a bicameral legislature and in in most states with a bicameral legislature, the idea is that our, our politics should be about the ways that we make accommodations on things that we disagree on. So some sense of bipartisanship is a good thing where you get both sides who they disagree on something working together to, to come to the best outcome that they possibly can. But there's another version of that where, you know, coming from the state of Illinois uh, with its deep, deep deep problems. Why I have always been skeptical when I hear something being lauded as bipartisan, because at least seven times out of 10, that is both sides coming together to agree on something for really terrible reasons. That generally isn't good for the people of that individual state, but it is definitely good for the legislators that are uh, making the impact. And, and Dan, what you said there reminded me of, and we'll put it in the show notes, again, one of the best things that Saturday Night Live has done in the last five years was the Republican or not sketch, where they bring out these people and have them make these statements. And the contestants are supposed to figure out from the statements if they're Republican or they're not. And there's one in there where the guy says, Facebook is evil. And the guy kind of jumps to answer. He's like, ah, because they spread misinformation or because they banned Donald Trump. And here is an example of your point about bipartisanship. The right Republicans are angry about social media for one set of reasons, and the left is angry about it for a different set of reasons. And they're coming together here to empower the state in a way that I think is unhelpful and unhealthy and potentially harmful, but because the right has essentially now caved on the idea that this should there should be a role for the state in this kind of stuff. And the left, generally speaking, has always been more comfortable with the idea of the state getting regulatorily involved in these things. And there are very few people left to stand up and say, to ask the question that is the reason why I think there should be one angry libertarian in every public policy conversation because somebody needs to ask the question, why should we do anything at all? And 
I don't know that there's been a satisfactory answer given to that question. And again, going back to the social science data as well, I, I agree entirely with the way that Dan laid it out. I think there are still more questions about this than there are answers. And the people who are presenting it, much as I like the work of Jonathan Haidt as just being absolutely a, a full story told here, uh, I think are being disingenuous about all of that. And it just strikes me that this is similar to the reactions we have always seen with the development of new technologies, that the same kind of story repeats itself, that we said, you know, television is going to corrupt the kids and it's going to rot our minds and radio was going to corrupt the kids and it was going to rot our minds and the printing press was going to corrupt everybody was going to rot our minds. And. There are examples you can point to where you could say that that was true, and there is plenty of other things that have evolved from all of those advents that have been good as well. And it's almost as if there is just nothing in this world that is an unalloyed good or, I guess, an alloyed bad. These things are complicated, and I just find it incredibly disappointing the unserious ways that people seem to be trying to deal with this, especially, again, in this case – making what I think are false arguments about how big tech was in power before and now parents are being empowered when, again, as I see it, parents have always been in power and I just I, – I don't get it. And well, a- I mean the mechanics are interesting because the actual argument is that children were empowered and that the default should be that the state should be empowered unless parents opt out. Um, which is an interesting mechanic um, and which is interesting – When you talk about this legislation being popular, what if we removed the parents can opt out question of the of this? Because if if these if these so if if the social harm is real, if this is harmful to children in a way that let's say we all acknowledge that alcohol is harmful for children, um, why have the parental carve-out. Why allow parents to harm their children if this is if if this is if the magnitude of the effects that some of these people in the minority of these studies pick out, you know, you can find some of these where the effects are very stark on particularly young girls. Um, if that's true, it seems like a sort of criminal negligence for the, st- of, for the state to allow parents to do this. We don't allow parents to opt out of the alcohol prohibition for children. And yet we are allowing this, which to me says that this is, again, there's, there's a great deal of signaling or perhaps this is not as uncompromising a stance as we're being led to believe. Yeah, I have. I'm pretty cynical about the motivations behind this. Um, either, and it's probably a combination of both, so I'll start with incompetence. Uh, old people don't get computers. They're scared by what they don't understand. Uh, they don't even realize that all the tools they need already exist. Incidentally, big tech has already give, given parents the power <laughs> to monitor and control their children's consumption, as Eric pointed out. Um, Also, ironically, if you are limiting uh, children's access to only services with less than 10 million members, that means 
only the more fringe ones will be available. It's the the biggest ones that have all of the safeguards in place. That's how they grow so big. They you know necessarily get to the point where like, oh, we got a bunch of teenagers signing up for our app. We better do something so our public image is protected. Um, so there, I mean, there's that side of it. I think there there just is a certain amount of older people, and I'm I'm getting towards the age myself, uh, but not quite there. Uh, they just don't get tech and don't get you know, young adult and teenager and other, you know, consumption of it and use of it. And so they're just scared by what they don't understand. Um, and they apparently are ignorant of all the resources that already exist out there for them. However, I, I do think there is probably something to uh, a more uh, ex- explanation of corruption behind this, that there are people who jump at the opportunity to be demagogues and they know they themselves might know that those things are out there but they know that there's at least a critical mass of parents who are in that first category who don't understand how this stuff works who don't properly monitor their kids maybe want to but they have none of the know-how for how to do that and so they can prop themselves up or their party or their you know, their current coalition and government, whatever the case may be, by saying, we are going to protect your kids from those evil big tech companies. Um, and they can phrase it this way and they can, you know, you got bipartisan support in the in the legislature in Utah. Um, and you can kind of drum up this, this populism um, over an issue that basically all the resources are already there to solve it in your own home. If you just Google, believe it or not, or DuckDuckGo if you really have to, uh, but you can find all those parental controls that you want. They are out there. You can use them. You should use them. Um, but outsourcing virtue to the law is always, always, always a poor substitute. And in this case, I think absolutely impractical. It will not be enough, even if even if any of this stuff passes. Yeah, that, that, that appeal to that uh, kind of populist rage that exists out there, again, I think uh, in, in not entirely in ignorance, but certainly in part in ignorance of technology and social media in general, uh, just kind of reminds me of the Simpsons episode where Homer runs for sanitation commissioner and his campaign slogan is, can't someone else do it? Uh, uh, to me, this is essentially what, you know, the public demand, the popular, you know, non-legislators that I'm talking about here demand for this kind of stuff. Again, understanding what we've already talked about, that you have this power already, parents. You can, you know, even at minimum, if you don't understand how an iPad works and you don't know how to use the settings on it, do you know what the the other thing that we make our children do at the end of the day or when they're done with their tablet, they've used up all their time? They give it to, they give it to us. They turn it in. You can control all of this. And I get it. Parenting is hard. It is not an easy thing to do. You're going to disappoint your kids a lot, and especially as they start getting towards the teenage years, they're going to get really angsty, and they're going to be unhappy with you because you're taking their toys away. It really, in that sense, is no different than when you were they were three or four and you were taking their toys away when you needed to take their toys away. The fundamental there doesn't change. Uh, I get that that is hard in that sense, but that's your responsibility as a parent, you are already empowered to do this. You didn't need the Utah legislature to pass something to make it possible for you to do it. I strongly recommend disappointing your kids from a very early age. 
Let's move on to our second topic, which is uh, very much related to the first topic that we were discussing. And, and Dylan, you actually provided the per- perfect segue into that, uh, which was your statement. Old people don't get computers. And if you need to be reminded of this, one need only look at some of the questions that were being asked last week at the congressional hearing about TikTok. Now, look, given what I just said in the last segment, uh, I am going to make some exceptions here specifically for this social media platform, because while we can debate the virtue of Facebook or Twitter or specifically Google, especially since they dropped that whole don't be evil as a slogan thing, which is, you know, one, it's a little unnerving that any company wants to have don't be evil as their slogan. It's even more worrisome when you drop the slogan. I I just want to throw that out again from a marketing and branding perspective when your whole thing has been don't be evil and then you're kind of like, "Eh, never mind, we can maybe be evil. At least we're going to open the possibility that we can be evil You got to commit to that. Um, It's really – you can't pull back from that one, you know, (laughs) not without some clear nasty implications. But TikTok is different in the sense – and this is one of the things that – one of the, the, the few good lines of questioning that happened in this hearing was pressing the CEO of TikTok on the relationship between TikTok and its parent company ByteDance and its parent company ByteDance and the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, We're going to get to – I'm going to just throw the question out there – whether you think there's a justifiable argument for banning TikTok. But I think it is certainly more complicated by the fact that it is just a truism that this is an app that is feeding a whole lot of user data, data, not back to Facebook, not back to Google, all of which, both of which are American-based companies, yes, that have a global presence, but that are American-based companies. But instead to a Chinese company and knowing what we know about China and the Chinese Communist Party is effectively a subsidiary of the Chinese Communist Party. That is concerning. Now, personally, my opinion here, I've been asked this question even by some people here on our staff, uh, given that we've made a documentary about Jimmy Lai, who is a political dissident in Hong Kong, uh, who is being persecuted by the Chinese Communist Party. There are a certain there's a certain level of threat that I think we as an organization uh, can and should and do feel from the Chinese Communist Party. They're not big fans. Let's put it that way. Uh, we had a denial of service attack uh, on our website, our systems last year. Do I know that it was China? No, but you know, hey, it happened in the middle of making this documentary about someone that uh, China would very much not like people to hear about. Uh, I recommend to people. I'm, again, I'm not in favor of a ban, but I don't recommend that people have the app installed on their phone because the way that China has been proceeding for at least, I believe, about the last ten years or so. Uh, from a computer digital espionage perspective is they have ceased trying to specifically hack systems that they think will have beneficial or important information in them. And it is quite literally just a vacuum cleaner perspective, uh, perspective on it. Suck up absolutely everything you can, store it, and we'll make sense of it later. Uh, so just people should understand that you are sending 
an inordinate amount of information back to bite to TikTok, which is going to bite dance, which is going to the Chinese Communist Party. If you have the app installed on your phone, uh, I encourage people uh, to emulate what good millennials do, which is if you want to see the stuff that's on TikTok, you just wait a couple of weeks and it shows up in Instagram reels or on Facebook reels. It all and all the stuff worth looking at ends up there eventually. Or just get the URL of the video itself and open it in a browser, but don't install the app on your phone. That being said, again, from observing the hearing, I am not hearing the compelling argument for banning the app. And again, I'm not entirely certain exactly how that would work, because if you want to talk about ingenuity online, not just like young kids in terms of getting around some of the restrictions that we were talking about that Utah was putting forward, people are going to get access to it. People are going to get they're going to hack around. They're going to install the app on their phone if they really want it. So the effectiveness should be a question that somebody should be answering. But Given, again, the line of questioning that we heard from members of Congress, mostly written for them by their staffers and then butchered by those members of Congress who seem to lack a baseline understanding of technology and social media, isn't really encouraging for anyone to think that if we were going to approach some kind of legislative restrictions on TikTok, that they would be smart, well thought out and effective, considering uh, what we just saw in Utah as well. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm I'm skeptical on all sorts of fronts here. Um, I think it is fine and, you know, prudent to be cautious about TikTok. But even then, unless you're doing like a free Hong Kong sea shanty. <laughs> I'm I'm not really sure, you know what what the red flag is going to be. Um, I'm most skeptical, and I I've heard this. Um, I, I feel like the FBI made a statement at one time, but the sheer amount of data and metadata that intelligence agencies get is more than any human being and currently more than any like AI algorithm can even like sort through. It's just to find the signal in the midst of the noise is way too much. So yes, we should be concerned that China may be using TikTok as a means to gather data and information. If you are, you know, someone who is actively involved in, uh, you know, supporting oppressed peoples in China and other places where they have an interest. Yeah. Like don't, don't have the app. Don't, you know, don't share your information because that's something I could see them using it for. But if you're just a guy or for that matter, a teenager who likes to dance, you know, or whatever, um, I'm a little confused as to what the danger is other than the more general dangers that we just sort of discussed about social media in general. Um, and then the other side, President Trump tried to ban TikTok, and it was shut down in the courts. Like, this actually happened once. A pre- the previous president, the current president, agrees. Once again, we have bipartisan support for different reasons. Um, Trump did it because they uh, they bought or they signed up for a bunch of seats to one of his rallies and didn't show up, a bunch of teenagers on TikTok. Um, so, like, it was all half empty. Um, so that was his reasoning. Uh, at least that's what I remember. Maybe I'm completely wrong about that. But... Uh, uh, you know, Biden, it's, you know, again, more of the populism sort of thing and international concerns. Also, similarly, Trump tried to pressure um, ByteDance to sell. Um, Biden also trying to pressure ByteDance to sell. In both cases, doesn't seem like it's going to work. Um, so I'm just not 
I don't know. I think just like if you don't like TikTok, don't use TikTok. Like maybe that's too. I realize that's a little naive of a statement, but again, like if you don't want your kid using TikTok, don't let your kid use TikTok. It's the same sort of. We're just back to the same discussion that we just had. I think. Um, and I don't know why the Congress of the United States is wasting time asking completely technologically illiterate questions to techies when there's all sorts of things they could be spending their time on. Although I guess maybe they could be doing a lot of worse things. <laughs> so I could be I could be thankful. There's a silver lining here that they're wasting their time on this and not something else. So I think the security concerns are real. Um, there have been a number of states, different government agencies that have banned this because you have things like keystroke logging, um, all sorts of ways that uh, apps can and are exploited, all kinds of apps uh, from all different sources that can get information. And part of this is people don't seem to have internalized the fact that <clears throat> this is not your information. The moment that you share your information, and you might have contractual agreements with various service providers. Those service providers might even do their level best to honor those agreements, but data breaches occur routinely from major companies that have major security budgets. And you should not be under any illusions that what you are doing online is private in any way. However, most people operate as if it were. And most of the time, it works out for you. One of the challenges with going at this singular company for these issues is that, you know, TikTok is now, what, the second most popular social media platform and how we rank it? We are just now getting sort of the political consensus around this. Um, there is nothing that would stop any other Chinese company from producing a website or piece of software that gains popularity in North America. Um, there's, just, there's just no barrier there. Uh, again, some states have seen these as sort of like national security threats or, 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 or threats to the integrity of their own governments and have gone to elaborate lengths to restrict particularly uh, foreign websites, foreign applications from their markets. And that has been a decided challenge for them. And these are societies that do not have our robust First Amendment protections, that do not have our robust institutions of private property, rule of law. It is still extremely difficult. So what I would like to see out of these, you know, I'm, I'm largely indifferent as to whether this is banned or not. Um, I think that it poses a security risk. But I think that in, in, in the world we live in today, this will happen again. Even if you successfully ban TikTok, even if you successfully force its sale, even if there will be another TikTok. And if not another TikTok, there will be espionage on Amer directed at American firms to gather the same sort of data from American citizens on the part of foreign governments hostile to the United States. Yeah, under the, essentially the same argument. Do you know what else is a security risk? The internet. The whole internet. Pretty much anything you do. I, I make this point on a regular basis, and I 
try to remind people, the internet is forever. Even if you think it has been deleted or you got rid of it somehow, if it is something that uh, you wrote on a blog that you had and then took the blog down, the Internet Archive still exists. The Internet is forever. It is always going to be discoverable in some way. Uh, but I, the, the same logic applies to the Internet writ large. It is potentially a security risk. And what is just frustrating to me in the last segment and what we were talking about in this segment and what we were talking and what we're talking about is the abdication of a role in our politics for anyone pushing the idea of personal responsibility, that you should be responsible for yourself and for your family, that you should make these decisions, that you should become an informed individual about the risks and the benefits, and that you should make the correct decision for yourself. And again, because, yes, I I will cede the point that uh, TikTok is a more of a direct pipeline straight from your user data direct to China. But there, there are plenty of other ways that the same information is out there circulating on the internet. Nobody ever reads the uh, terms that you have to agree to to use any app that you download, any service that you get. It is worth, once again, reminding people that uh, that old uh, aphorism is true in this case, that if you're not paying for the service, you are not the user, you're the product. If you're uncomfortable with that, don't use it. Understand what you are doing, but it is just incredibly disappointing to me that there is nobody out there advocating from a clear personal responsibility point of view here that used to be a part of our politics. But now here we have essentially uh, the people that I largely saw as making those personal responsibility arguments just kind of caving on two with, with two defenses. One, essentially, it's just too hard. It's just too hard to know what you're supposed to know, to be an informed parent, to be an informed user. It's too hard. So we have to get the nanny state to step in in order to help you. And, you know, again, because as my friend uh, always points out for everything you do in life, there are two reasons. There's the good reason and the real reason. The real underlying reason here being a whole bunch of people in both political parties are very, very mad at social media companies and they want to do something to punish them. I just do not see the vast majority of this stuff as being any more noble than that. So – I think there's another angle here, too, in terms of political incompetence, that should our government succeed in banning TikTok, like, A, first of all, passing something coherent, and then actually implementing it. Um, Gen Z ain't so young anymore. Um, you know, I'm a millennial. I mentioned I'm getting old. I'm almost 40. I'm 38. People, um, and, and there are people still attributing the problems with uh, they're talking about Gen Zers and they still refer to them as millennials. So. Right. Right. Yeah. The, there's that side of it. But like Gen Z is is going to be voting in 2024 in a big way. If you take away their favorite social media app, all you need is one person to capitalize on that and say, I will bring back TikTok, <laughs> right? I don't know if that's enough to win It's going to create its own populist demand, but yeah. Yeah, like right now you got right and left united against it. But if someone will take that oddball issue and really cater towards, you know, Gen Z, they might be able to win some primaries. They, you know, make a pretty big splash, upset things. Um, I think it's a political miscalculation, Um 
I don't think it's going to be successful. I think a lot of it is just grandstanding again and wasting of time. Um, but should something, you know, actually come about from this, I don't see how this isn't just political poison. Um, yeah, older people, they're behind it, but they're already behind it anyway. And they're already going to vote for whoever they want to vote for anyway. And when it's a bipartisan measure, you're not gaining anything for your party. <laughs> right. Um, so how are you going to set yourself out? You be that TikTok candidate. Um, that's how you set yourself apart. Uh, that's how you get a constituency that other people aren't going to get. Um, so I, I don't know. I don't, I don't see the, I don't think, I don't see this playing out in the way in which opportunistic people might want it to. I am skeptical that the TikTok army will rise up, mostly because the technology to distribute, or if they do, they'll only do it for sixty seconds. Well, <laughs> the technology to distribute sixty-second video clips is not a novel one. And in fact, every other social media company has created their own. Uh, hey, and pour one out for Vine. I mean, that was yeah. the originator of this. Um, it, which Twitter owns, yes. actually. So like, I, 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 I foresee if there's a ban, you will then find a, a similar replacement product and, you know, the, the, you know, the, the calls for blood from, from the, you know, TikTok armies will evaporate. Andrew Yang, this is not your political arbitrage opportunity. <laughs> Let's move on to our final topic, uh, which is last week. And I'll uh, read the intro here from uh, the Morning Dispatch. Chinese President Xi Jinping traveled to Moscow last Monday for a three-day summit with Vladimir Putin, marking the first meeting between the two leaders since September and since the International Criminal Court issued a warrant for the Russian president's arrest over alleged war crimes in Ukraine. The West has spent the better part of a year warning China against cozying up with Putin. This week's talks are last week's talks are the surest sign yet that those warnings have not been heeded. In a bizarro pen pal situation, the leaders previewed their summit by publishing op-eds in each other's government-controlled newspapers uh, over the the prior weekend. Xi's in—I'm not even going to try to pronounce these guys. um, uh, Well, the Putin's is in People's Daily. Roisasaska Gazeta, I believe, is the uh, Russian one. Apologies to all Russian speakers out there. This is certainly not my bailiwick. On the docket, agreements to boost economic cooperation and discussions of China's peace plan for the war in Ukraine. Details on what uh, was decided over the course of the meetings are scarce, but the joint statements signed by Putin and Xi appear to reaffirm the already substantial economic and geopolitical ties between the two countries. One of the main goals of the talks appears to have been showcasing Xi and Putin's burgeoning bromance. And we're only kind of kidding. The two autocrats expressed effusive affection for one another over the three days, with Xi referring to Putin as his, quote, dear friend, and Putin calling Xi his good old friend. Pointing to photos of the first visit to Moscow as uh, president back in 2013, Xi told Putin, you remind me of that. Uh, And to this day, these pictures are well preserved in my heart. Oh, sweet Hallmark card moment. Xi and Putin's personal relationship aside, the meeting indicated their country's strengthened ties since Russia invaded Ukraine 13 months ago. China has officially maintained neutrality in the conflict, but it's boosted trade with Russia in recent months to help it deal with the effects of Western economic sanctions. What should we make of this meeting and this emerging relationship between these two autocratic leaders? I'm not one for conspiracy theories, as you know, but... There's a great but coming. There is... 
there is one and only one real common interest between Russia and China, and that, of course, is keeping the Mongols out. (laughs) (laughs) We know what this was really about. Um, I know. I mean, this is about Russia needing other options and China needing other options. Um, In some ways, this is you know, something that's worrisome. Um, But a lot of the the stuff regarding Ukraine remained as vague as it was before the summit. Um, It doesn't seem like anything was practical or actionable. Um, I would love to see peace in Ukraine, and I don't really care where it comes from, but it doesn't seem like it's coming from China or Russia, Um, at least not in the moment. Um, And it's more about the, you know, a workaround for economic sanctions, um, giving people another option, uh, these countries another option than the West, than the United States when it comes to, uh, you know, their economic resources um, and giving Russia more economic opportunity in particular. uh, You know, they're inviting Chinese companies in. Um, They have a pretty backwards and messed up economy, and (laughs) that's what they need. Uh, One of the sorts of things they need is foreign investment. Um, So, you know, you have that uh, for China. You know, it's a win for the the yuan. Uh, that was part of the negotiations that it has to all be in their currency uh, for economic deals, um, so they can manipulate that as as they want uh, and exploit the Russians, I suppose. Um, so it's sort of thing that, like, yeah, this is good for them, um, but it's not maybe as worrisome as it had started um, or as people had worried at the beginning. I mean, this this cements the you know this is this is the diplomatic show that illustrates that we no longer live in a unipolar world. One of the most startling things about sort of the ongoing Ukrainian crisis is the severity of the economic sanctions leveled by the West and how it has had very little in terms of long-term economic impact on the Russian Federation. And the reason for that is the markets that exist in China and in India for leading Russian exports, which are mostly raw materials. It's an extraction-based economy with petroleum, natural gas, these sorts of things. Yeah, what is the line I heard over the weekend uh, that Russia is effectively now China's nuclear-armed gas station? Yeah. Yeah, although they they did not succeed, or at least they talked about it, but they actually didn't do anything in building a second pipeline uh, to China. That was the Siberian uh, pipeline. That was one of the things Russia wanted that they did not get out of this, at least not in any concrete form. But, I mean, this this is one of those things where, you know, we now live in a world in which uh, the sort of soft power exercised by sanctions that the West has been able to use um, – is becoming increasingly ineffective because of the emergence of not only China, but India and their ambivalence on these sort of questions of, you know, of uh, territorial integrity, legitimacy of the international system. And uh, this is this is this is the uh, the showpiece that documents that. Yeah, I mean, it, it, this isn't a great thing as uh, no. Dylan pointed out, I mean, this is, or Dan pointed out, is the end of the uh, the, the notion that we lived in a unipolar world. And uh, I think we in 
some ways over pronounce the threats that are coming from China and Russia. But also uh, this is clearly the kind of thing that is worrisome because there is a mutually beneficial arrangement here for both of these uh, countries, especially one like Russia that is increasingly more cut off from the rest of the world, but does have a partner again in China for a lot of the trading relationships that can help sustain it. Um, so I think this is the kind of thing to be concerned about. Um, I'm, I'm far from a foreign policy uh, expert, but it uh, it strikes me as the kind of thing that I just don't know that the United States is really well prepared for, um, especially considering that the economic problems, I mean, we always draw back to analogies with the Cold War. Um, and while this is a former communist country, in Russia, which is now just a kleptocracy, and a current communist country in name only in China. And I think this is an important point that we do need to drive home, um, that just as the same with uh, North Korea, these are not countries that are committed to a Marxist or communist ideology. In fact, this is one of the vexing things about China in these arguments. As I've taken uh, the Hong Konger around and talked about this, I will get questions about the threat from China and there will be inevitable comparisons to the Cold War. And one of my points has always been that this is just way more complicated than the question of the Soviet Union was because there was no possible way – no real way for the United States to have a significant trading relationship with that nation. The United States has a significant trading relationship with China and one that is going to be very, very difficult to end even if there was the political will to do so because of those implications. The reason that it is problematic is because China is not committed to any kind of a communist or Marxist ideology that is going to have it run its economy into the ground the way that the Soviet Union did and that precipitated its collapse. The fact that it is more flexible, the fact that it is willing to open up markets but continue to restrain the political freedom of its own people is a different kind of problem than we were dealing with for the 50, 60 some years that the Cold War happened. And when we look at the level of deep thought that is going into things like social media and TikTok from people in elected positions as legislators, both on a national and a state level, I don't know how anyone comes away from that feeling confident that the United States is well prepared to handle these challenges as the other pole in the world. In fact, I come away from it fairly demoralized that we are ill prepared for it and that the way that we react to it is probably going to be dumber rather than smarter. Yeah, trends are not good right now. Um, we, in our current moment, um, at least for the last you know six or seven years now, have significantly lost confidence in American enterprise, whether it be through tariffs and trade restrictions, through the you know um, explosion uh, of potential trade deals, as fraught and complicated and uh, you know problematic as some of them may be. But like the Trans-Pacific Partnership, what as you've mentioned in previous podcasts, would have made us less dependent upon China and given American companies more consumers outside of that uh, you know relationship uh, to give us more options. Thanks, populism. Um, yeah, um, and 
And then in, domestically, you know, things like, oh, you know, we're going to spend all our time worrying about big tech, one of the few successful industries in our country left, right? Um, not to say there's no problems there either. That's not my point. But in many cases, we've already discussed where there are concerns, where there are problems, the not only the uh, first solution, but the best solution, and perhaps the only practical solution, starts with personal responsibility and virtue. And we used to be a nation that combined that with enterprise. And when you have those two things together, then you can compete in a world where Russia and China are starting to cozy up, at least economically. Um, but if you're just so worried about how are we going to protect American companies, how are we going to protect American children, or how is the state going to protect American children, you know, all this sort of stuff, instead of just saying, no, come at us, <laughs> right? Like, we got this. We are the most creative enterprising nation in the world. We still are, frankly, uh, so we, we can renew that confidence if we have the will to do so. Um, but just saying, you know, go ahead, try with your backwards economies to out-enterprise us. It will not work if we just have the faith to do that. I just want to note that I kind of appreciated uh, what I could potentially read as Dylan's version of Carter's malaise speech. And he is in just the same kind of fetching sweater that I remember Jimmy <laughs> Carter in those video clips being in. But no, I, mean, I think it is a good point, And I appreciate you tying this together again in the bow of personal responsibility and virtue that we've been talking about in the other segments. Uh, I think that is a good way to bring uh, this podcast episode to a close. So let's call it a wrap there. Thank you for listening to Act and Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, please look in the show notes for a link where you can subscribe directly to Act and Unwind or just search Act and Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find this program. Thanks to Dan. Thanks to Dylan. For the Acton Institute, I'm Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week. <laughs>